Our scripture passage today comes from John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's holy word. And when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jug and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. The grass withers and the flower fades. Maybe seated. As we come to God's word, we need his help, so we will begin by praying. Gracious Heavenly Father, we need your word uh, to guide us, to direct us, to convict us, to change us. It is the revelation of who you are, illuminated by your Holy Spirit. May it have its full work in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
As we are working through the Gospel of John, I want to continue to challenge myself to do longer passages, and so 30 verses is a long time to stand, and yet, how we take for granted the accessibility of God's Word to us, to be able to have it in our hands, in our bulletins, in our homes each week. It's part of the process we're going through here and and highlighting the things we care about most, making the Word of God central in our worship. So it's coming up to Christmas time, Thanksgiving, uh, and that is a time of feel-good movies. We all love good stories, and the Hallmark Channel is particularly known for putting out these really cheesy, poorly made, feel-good movies. You know everything that's going to happen, there's going to be a tragedy, and then the widowed wife and her children are going to find this lovely man who will come and love them all so well. And everything will be made good at the end. We all know how it's going to end, but we love good stories. We have this in our own Christian world. When we get excited about celebrity conversions, uh, when Christianity breaks into the news cycle and people are talking about Jesus on TV, We all want to have this uh, broader cultural influence. We want the things we believe uh, to be validated. And we all hate bad stories. We don't want to watch a movie where the good guy doesn't win. And we get disappointed when the news cycle about the church doesn't paint us in a good light. Famous Christians or organizations that seem to wander from the faith cause us to have great distress as we are looking to have that cultural influence, that prominence in society that we are all craving as Americans in the daily, hourly, 24 hours a day news cycle. And this here is a story that's in many ways being contrasted with the story we had in John chapter 3. John chapter 3 was the story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus and Jesus telling him about the need to be born again. That story ended up being a bad story. Jesus, Jesus tells all of this stuff to Nicodemus and he just doesn't get it. And if we wanted to write that story, we would think this, oh, Nicodemus is this prominent man in society. If only he would have believed in Jesus then he would have gone back to the Sanhedrin and converted all of the Sanhedrin, and then they would have led all of Israel to worship God as Christ is calling them to. He would have had this great influence. It would have been the headline in Jerusalem. But that's not what happened. Nicodemus didn't get it. But we come to this story, and it undermines our own sense of clamoring for cultural, political influence, wanting to be on the newspaper front page. Because the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming never meets our expectations in the way we think it should. Our passage begins here by talking about how Jesus is beginning to get a reputation for himself among those Pharisees. 
people are starting to go to him and, and Jesus is having this influence and instead of feeding into it, he, he leaves town. He knows that there's going to be persecution coming on John and he knows his hour has not yet come. His ministry has not been complete and so he doesn't want to be in the spotlight. So he takes off on a trip and he tells us that he's going up to Galilee. So if, if you're not familiar with the shape of Israel, it's, it's kind of a rectangle, maybe a banana shape. And at the bottom is where Judea is. That's where Jerusalem is, the temple. That's where all of this has been taking place. And Jesus is from Galilee. That's way up on the top. That's where he grew up. And there's certainly a lot of people living all along the way. But in the middle is this town, this region called Samaria. Now, we've talked about Samaritans in the past, but it's good for us to remember who they are and what's going on here. The passage certainly highlights to us some of the difficulty that's happening here. But Samaria is this place that historically was part of the divided kingdom, the northern part of the divided kingdom uh, back in Israel's history. And during that time, uh, the Assyrians came and they took over Israel and they took them out into captivity. And when they came back, these were the people that intermarried with the Assyrians. And so they have a, a, a relational connection to the people of God, to Israel, to, to Abraham, and yet they've muddied the waters. They've disobeyed the commandments to not intermarry with foreigners. Uh, and while the kingdom was divided, these were the people that set up for themselves their own temple. They weren't going to go down to Jerusalem to worship in their temple. They are going to build their own they even have their own version of the Bible. If you can imagine, uh, that doesn't bode well for those people who want to be faithful Israelites. The Samaritans, in every way possible, are an abomination to them. They've violated God's law by intermarrying. They've worshiping in, the, in a wrong place, not the place that God has called them to, to gather. They've perverted God's word. They are unwelcome and unclean. There's this animosity at play here that we need to have in mind. In fact, this, this way to get from Jerusalem to, to Galilee would have been very direct right through Samaria. It would have been the, the fastest way is the straight line north. But people were so disgruntled about this Samaria that they would go hours and hours out of their way over the Jordan River, up and then back in, in order to avoid any interactions with the Samaritans. And this is the scene we have for us as Jesus comes to this well. Jesus' kingdom undermines our expectations in two ways. It comes forward in breaking, bound, breaking down boundaries and in, by bringing the Spirit. It's the first breaking down boundaries. Jesus is entering into the unclean region. Remember, uh, we just ended this section on baptism, and the question that came to John the Baptist was, about purification. Who should we go to? Should we go to John or Jesus? 
to be cleansed. And now Jesus is going to an unclean place. It was very important to be ceremonially clean at this time. You couldn't go into the temple if you were to defile yourself through many, many, many ways. And I imagine interacting with Samaritan would fall onto that list. Jesus is not following the pattern we would expect for a strict Jewish man, or especially not a rabbi. And one of the things I just want to point out is that throughout John, we've seen the divinity of Christ being held up, right? He was the Word in the beginning with God and was God. Through him, all things were created. And we're beginning to understand the divinity of Christ. And yet, here we see him showing up in Samaria, and he's tired. Because Christ is not some sort of superhero, but he's fully God and fully man. And he lived a tiring life like we do. And as he's walked, presumably now for six hours, it's noon, he's walked up to Samaria. He's tired. It's hot. He's thirsty. He lived a life like ours. And he comes with humility, asking for somebody to help him. But Jesus is breaking through strongly held cultural, religious customs and barriers. The other thing I want to point out about this scene is that Jesus is talking to a woman at a well. If you look at verse 27 at the end, the, the disciples show up and they see he's talking to this woman and they're like, don't ask. They don't ask what's going on. But if, if we're familiar with Old Testament narratives of the well, well, the well is where you go to meet your wife so many times in the Old Testament. And now Jesus is, is at this well by himself and this woman, and she's this foreign woman that's unclean. And as we find out later, you know, not the person that you would expect someone like Jesus to be interacting with as a, Jewish rabbi. If you wanted to become ceremonially unclean, I can't imagine a better way to do it than to drink from the cup of a Samaritan woman. And yet that is what Jesus is asking for. So there's this contrast between Nicodemus and the woman. You may not pick up on this right away, but even the reality that Nicodemus has a name is significant. He's somebody that people know. It was worth writing down that Nicodemus was the one who came to Jesus and that we see this person as just some woman from Samaria. Unknown. If you would have written down Margaret from Samaria, people wouldn't have known who you're talking about. Nicodemus is this prominent man in society we find in this passage that this woman is one who's riddled with scandal. Having five husbands is less scandalous in our time. Certainly not something we would wish upon people to have to go through that process of divorce and remarriage over and over again. And yet in this time it would have been unthinkable. Nicodemus is this knowledgeable teacher. He's got all of the training. He is one of the religious leaders of the day. And this woman, 
We're not even told. We don't know what she knows or doesn't know. He's influential. She's an outcast. He's got this perfect Jewish heritage, the ideal Israelite. She's got a mixed race. He's morally upright, no doubt a diligent keeper of God's law. She's morally bankrupt. What's happened here is what happens in all of our lives is that the things that give us the greatest pride and confidence in shaping who we have as our own identity, whether it's our good works or our prominent name or our ability to yield cultural influence or political influence, those things only go to serve to blind us to the gospel. Nicodemus had already arrived He had no need of a savior. We see here that when the revelation of Jesus Christ comes to those who are undeserved, who are sinful, who are humble, who do not have confidence in their own strength or reputation, their embarrassing past is replaced with an embarrassing display of God's grace. Paul gives this compliment, we'll say, to 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, to the church there, to describe who the church really made of. What is it that really unites us? How have we come in to be God's people? And he says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What a comforting word from the Apostle Paul. Hey, none of you are wise or strong or important. Because our strength and our wisdom and our importance comes to us through belonging to Christ. And so the more strong and important we are, 
the harder it is for us to see him. Jesus' kingdom is about bringing the Spirit. It tells us in this beginning section that Jesus didn't baptize. And yet there's still this imagery of purification that must be in the background of our minds as we have this continuous narrative from the gospel writer. And yet now we're beginning to see what Jesus' purification is really all about. He uses this imagery of water at a well. As he interacts with this woman, he tells her, well, I'm going to give you living water. Now, we uh, put a whole bunch of, of categories into living water, and, and that's right to do this side of the cross. But at the time, living water is just a way to describe fresh water that's coming from a stream, active water. She doesn't really, really get it. And he says, well, this water that I'm going to give is going to well up to eternal life. You'll never thirst again. She begins to desire this never-ending water, but she still doesn't really get it. Jesus has continued to use earthly language to talk about heavenly things. He talked about the new birth through the, the imagery of childbirth. And Nicodemus didn't get it. He begins to talk about his purification, the work of the Spirit in people's lives. And she doesn't really get it. But then Jesus wants to get to the heart. And he reveals her sin. Go and call your husband. He's beginning to reveal himself to her, tell him about the work of his spirit, the things he can do for her, and he stops for a second in the seeker-sensitive way Jesus always does and points out her sin. That's a joke, by the way. Jesus is not seeker-sensitive. He's always willing to risk in order to speak the truth in love. He reveals her sin, and she deflects, likely very humiliated, and instead wants to talk about theology. Should we worship here, or are we supposed to worship there? You seem to be somebody who's a prophet who would know these things. I have these questions. Jesus doesn't press too hard. He, he actually answers her question about worship, but he does it in a surprising way. He says, it's, it's not going to matter if you're in Jerusalem or if you're here in Samaria. None of these places are going to matter anymore because the Father is spirit, and he's seeking those who are going to worship him in spirit and in truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? Well, Christ is talking here about the work of the spirit in people's lives in their hearts, individually transforming them, giving them eternal life. Think of this imagery of that well and the imagery of the temple where you would have to come regularly to offer your sacrifices, to, to give, to, to hear God's word. And it would get you by until the next service, till the next Sabbath day, till the next feast. 
because that's where God's spirit dwelled. Above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. But that's all going away. Because God's spirit is not going to be contained to one place. It's going to be at work in the hearts of his people. And he won't accept this external worship anymore. It must be worship that is birthed out of the heart of people who are being changed by his spirit. The purification of the spirit, letting us draw near. Letting people like this woman in Samaria who are unclean in every possible way be able to draw near. The spirit at work to allow us to worship in spirit and in truth. And here's the truth. She doesn't even understand as he's talking about the doing away of this old style of worship. She's like, you know what? The Messiah is going to come. He'll tell us. But the spirit does this. Most importantly, it reveals to us who the Christ is. Jesus reveals himself to this woman in a way he has not revealed himself to anybody else. It's me. I am the Christ. And it changes everything. Worship through spirit and truth. Worship through the power and the, the outflow of God's spirit at work in us to reveal who Christ is. Only being able to draw near because he's the one who provides the spirit. Remember, he's the one who has the spirit without measure, the anointed one. The Holy Spirit's work is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This woman has the wrong gender. It would have been scandalous for Jesus to even be talking to her. That's why he asked her to go get her husband. She's got the wrong background, the wrong ethnicity, the wrong religious assumptions, and the wrong moral character. And yet she's being displayed here as really the first true convert into Jesus' ministry. And now she is going to go be the first evangelist for the kingdom of God in Samaria. To go and to tell other people, is this the Christ? To ask them the question that she herself has come to understand. I have a few questions for us to consider, questions I can't answer for, your, for, for you. We'll start by giving you some things I can answer for you. Worshiping in spirit and truth, we talked about this, and what that means. What does that mean for our worship, for the kingdom of God now? What does it mean for us to worship in spirit and truth? Well, it requires us to include some things, and it requires us to exclude certain things. It requires us to be born again, to truly worship. We must be people who have had changed hearts. We can't rely on other people. We can't rely on the faith of the pastor or your friend or anybody else. God is changing individual hearts, but then he's calling them together to worship. And so it must be birthed out of that reality. That when we come to worship, God is calling us to worship in faith. In response to his spirit at work. And we must worship in truth. 
we must always be about worshiping Jesus Christ, the one whom the Spirit re reveals to us. It's, it's why we do communion every week, to remind us it's all about Christ. His revelation and his word is central to our worship because we must worship in truth. And it requires that we exclude all sorts of other things. As much as they might be good, they are not the way in which the Father is seeking to be worshipped. Church is about Christ. It's not about Mother's Day. It's not about Veterans Day. It's not about the latest campaign slogans. All of the things that are always vying for attention in our society and trying to infiltrate into the worship of God must always be excluded. Because we're only focusing on one thing. As the Spirit enables us, we must come and glorify Christ. The one who's seated on the throne, high above all of these other things. That's what we do here each week. Some application questions for you to consider. What are the places of influence and identity in our life that grow pride in us, that blind us to what the kingdom is really all about, that, don't, that hinder us from seeing Christ as the Messiah, the, the, the one who we truly need? Perhaps it's political. Perhaps we have noble birth and we have a f familial pride and, and influence and, and identity. Maybe we are socially and culturally relevant. Maybe we have a higher education than others. Maybe we are morally upright. These aren't necessarily bad things to have. But they are things that will always vie for our true allegiance. They are things that will allow us to look at people like the woman at the well with scorn. To think the kingdom of God is not for people like that. It's for people like me. When we begin to think that way, we begin to lose sight of Christ and his kingdom. What are the cultural barriers and assumptions that are restrict restricting the kingdom of God in your life? Where is the unclean city? Who are the unclean people? that we're unwilling to talk to, unwilling to show our weakness to, to show up and ask them for a drink. Who do we think doesn't deserve to be included? Who is not welcome to come into our church? What sin offends you the most? These are the heart of the issue of what's happening here in this passage. Jesus is undermining all of our own allegiances and assumptions and our own pride and self-righteousness. And he's going to the most extreme example of somebody that we would have written off. And it should give us great hope. As these words from 1 Corinthians, as Paul says, we don't need to be political powerful, socially influential people. Our standing in the kingdom comes through the Spirit, revealing to us who Christ is. 
May we turn from those things. May we turn from the things that we find to give us strength that aren't Christ. And may we exclude them from our lives and from our worship. And may we continue to focus in on the one who provides life, who gives us water that will never go away, that meets our true thirst. May his spirit convict us of the sins we need to repent of. And may his spirit show us his glory that we may trust in him fully. May we go with that message to people that we often would think as unclean and undesirable and unworthy. And may we count ourselves among them. May that be our posture here in our lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods as a church Jesus is a savior of sinners, of whom we are the foremost. May we understand that more deeply. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. May it convict us and comfort us. May it guide us in our lives this week. Give us your spirit to reveal who Christ truly is, drawing us deeper into his kingdom. It's in his name we pray. Amen.